And, and we don't, I think as a culture as well, we don't have a lot of patience for that. We don't have a lot of tolerance for the failure that is needed for mm -hmm. us to create something new. A complex adaptive system is something that creates more complexity. So it starts off with, you know, building blocks. And then from those building blocks, it can create more and more complexity from that. Mm. That is what a human is, a brain is, a school is, an education system is, a government. All, all of these things are complex adaptive systems. What makes a complex adaptive system resilient is its ability to self-organize. So self-organization is the idea that the little pieces within it can now, you know, try new combinations and, and possibly shift out of, expand out of whatever the current structure is. Hello and welcome to Year of the Pivot on the Beyond Networking Podcast. This season, we're learning from individuals and organizations who made monumental shifts in 2020 in order to keep their business alive and continue the mission. I'm your host, Brian Miller, an author, speaker, and consultant on human connection. Today, we've got one of our featured experts for the season. Stephanie Faye Frank is a neuroscience researcher but she specializes in translating complex scientific concepts into real world language to help people find new ways to use their talents, discomforts, failures, and challenges as pathways to growth and evolution. In other words, she helps people pivot by transforming negatives into positives. I invited Stephanie to chat specifically about education's response to COVID over the past year. How did the field of education respond and how did individual teachers respond? This turned into an enlightening conversation about the nature of change itself at both the individual level and the systemic level. In particular, pay close attention to what Stephanie calls survival of the busiest and how we can leverage that principle to create the change we actually want. Check the show notes for all the ways to connect with Stephanie. Head to yearofthepivot.com for the Pivot Power newsletter. Get notified when a new episode drops, the Pivot Pearl of the Week, and gain access to exclusive live streams, masterminds, and even clubhouse get-togethers. And now I bring you Stephanie Faye Frank. This episode was made possible by Riverside.fm. Capture full, high-quality, raw audio in up to 4K video natively and without any internet interruptions. That's right. Even if the internet blips out during the live call, your recording remains pristine. Head to Riverside.fm for your free trial and a big thank you for sponsoring Year of the Pivot. Okay, Stephanie, thank you so, so much for being here. I know we are all incredibly busy in spite of the fact that none of us are leaving our houses. I don't know how that happened, but thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Although I actually do leave my house. I, I work in a clinic. So okay, I'm one so of the rare. You actually, homeless. you go into the world. Yes. It's amazing. I've lived in this room for a year, <laughs> uh, for a year. Uh, so what are you, what are you working on right now? Like just let's start there. What, what's on your plate this week, this weekend? Uh, so I'm building a training program right now about, um, systems thinking. So trying to bring the concept of looking at things from a much wider, longer term perspective. 
rather than events looking at patterns. So I'm just working on building that training program. Um, but I'm also, I also work at an intensive outpatient clinic. So I do uh, brain therapy in a sense. Um, I do brain maps, quantitative EEGs, mm-hmm. um, and neurofeedback and different kinds of neurocognitive testing with people with really high anxiety and depression and things like that. So wow. that consumes a lot of my time. Um, yeah. yeah. As, well. you, as soon as you started describing brain mapping and things like that, I felt like, like, I just thought you were talking about science fiction there for a second because that's that keeps that that stuff sounds like the stuff you would have seen in old movies as a distant future. But that's like that's like a real thing people do now. Um, Absolutely. So what what is the what is the advantage of of doing the brain mapping? You, you talked about anxiety and things like that. What can what can you do? What can you help people with that? Uh, just out of a curiosity. Yeah, it's it's so fascinating. So I mean, our brains are you know the circuits are talking to each other in different ways, and some people, especially what we see in depression, for example, is there's just slower, quieter activity in the left prefrontal cortex. There's something about almost the sensations we get in our body and our ability to make sense of them seems to be there's something up with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's that kind of profile, there's different profiles. So someone with a lot of anxiety, we might see a lot of the really fast high beta activity, which is our survival, you know, um, hyper, hyper focus kind of brain activity, mm-hmm. really dominant in like the right prefrontal cortex, for example. Mm-hmm. So when we get this imagery, it helps us just make a little more sense of what we're seeing in terms of the symptoms um, and seeing how that presents for the person. So then that can help with things like um, figuring out the kinds of therapy that can be helpful, Mm. whether it's, you know, the mindfulness meditation stuff, or it could be more movement focus. Um, You know, we'll even see regions that are related to emotion processing and trauma, things like that. So Um, the brain mapping really informs a lot of the other treatment we can do. So yeah, wow. I find it really fascinating. That's yeah. amazing. So at what point in the in in a I don't know a patient's journey do they end up coming to you? Have they already been working with maybe cognitive behavioral, and then they it's not working or something's not taking? Is that how they end up with you? Yes, yes, very much. So the the population I work with, they have done many different kinds of treatment, whether it's residential or just many other different kinds of medications and cognitive behavioral therapy. And a lot of it hasn't worked. And they're just at a point where they, they don't know what else to do. So mm-hmm. they come to this, this clinic. So, and then that, you know, that's the popular, I also have my own private stuff with my podcast and blog and coaching. Um, that's also usually the point where I'm meeting people as mm-hmm. well. They need to kind of get deeper into not just the the brain stuff, so that's what I do in the clinic, but our deeper core beliefs and how our brain architecture actually was kind of shaped over our experiences, because mm. um, that really helps people kind of get an idea of what they can do now to rewire and fire some new circuits. But it really helps to get into the deeper layers of why that even happens in the first place. So these brain maps are awesome, but I'm also a really big believer in that is the current moment of what we see, but there are events and experiences that built up to that point. And those have built in kind of programs and beliefs about ourselves that if we can get deeper into what those are and why they're ca- causing this mental chatter and mental noise and distraction and all that, 
then I find there's like a release that can happen for a lot of people. So mm. it's, um, I like the surface level of the, the, pic, the pretty pictures from the brain maps, but I'm a really big believer in going really deep into the stories of how, and the, the experiences of how that all got built up in the first place. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting because I, I, I feel like when, you know, you and I are both in like kind of the speaker, author, you know, kind of quote thought leadership world. In that world, I, I feel like we are all used to talking about stories, the stories we tell ourselves, the stories we tell others, the stories others tell about us. Um, but there's, it's not just like self-help speakery fluff, right? I mean, this this stuff, like, I mean, I believe it with all of my heart, but you, you can back this up with science. Like it, the stories we tell yeah. ourselves really matter, right? Yes, absolutely. And th this is the thing that's, um, I, I really, I'm trying to bring more into the world too. So we use these words like beliefs and stories, which are conceptual and we're using, like I call language sophisticated grunting. So we're using these like sim symbols and codes to try and, you know, create a grunt that represents what's happening. But a lot of this is uh, pre-verbal and non-verbal experiences that are are getting created through what I call sociobiological signals that are being projected and detected between us. So we're exchanging these. They create different sensations and, and um, reactions and responses within the body. That then comes up to the brain and we process it into something that then becomes verbal and like a story but it starts as pre-verbal and non-verbal. And so there's, it's a very deep visceral experience that we have as we grow up. And then that's where these stories kind of get created, but they're built through these experiences that actually create sensations and physiological responses first. Wow. And then through our culture and our family and the words that we get exposed to, we try to attach that experience to words that we figure out how you know, that we associate with, which is also why, you know, you hear Mr. Rogers, I think he used like name it to tame it kind mm -hmm. of thing that the more we can, the more elaborate and complex our ability to verbalize it, the more we are getting to the tiny little nuances of those experiences. So that's why it's yeah. so important to, yeah, make sense of it and talk about it. That, that reminds me of a really famous quote from a uh, philosopher. My my academic background is philosophy, and um, many of my listeners know, you may not, uh, that I, I started, I was just starting a PhD in, in contemporary analytic metaphysics. What would my life have been Ooh. like had I done that? Uh, I abandoned shit before I even started and did card tricks for a living instead for 10 years. Um, and looking back, it was the right choice. Uh, but hmm. nonetheless, maybe I, same, same. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I, I've always stayed a student of philosophy. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm really interested, especially in uh, contemporary philosophy of language. And so I was studying a lot of Bertrand Russell, and I was doing a lot of Ludwig Wittgenstein, of course, you have to if you're in that field. And what you were just describing made me think of the limits of my language mean the limits of my world. Um, and of course, he wrote that in Austrian, which means which is always funny because uh translation is interpretation right and so mm -hmm. i i remember my professors always reminding us as philosophy students i think i mentioned this recently on a pivot uh interview too so i, I apologize to uh, whoever's listening if they heard me say this in the very previous episode but <laughs> I, I remember them explaining to us you know if this stuff you're reading in philosophy seems vague or abstract to you you're reading it in English and it wasn't written originally. It was written in German or Austrian. And it's a much more specific language over there with way more words to describe really specific things. And that's kind of what you're talking about, right? 
Very much. Yeah. And it's also um, touches on another piece of this, which is that we, as we are getting older, like when we're young, we don't have a lot of the type of neural associations because we don't have enough exposure to language to create that kind of complexity in, in the verbal, like the verbalizing of our experiences. Mm -hmm. So that's the other piece too, that I think even education does miss out on as well is sometimes we are trying to speak about things in such a conceptual way, but it's not resonating with the experience of a person. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because our words don't match what they are capable of associating in that sense. So kind of like what you're saying, Austrian to English, mm -hmm. that can also happen with a teacher to student or parent to child or leader to employee, where they're using language that's on this level where if mm -hmm. the other person doesn't have enough neural connections, you know, associated with that sophisticated grunting we're doing, then they can't um, embody it. They can't ground what those words mean. So that's why I think it is so important for us to figure out how to incorporate as much of our senses into our experiences um, when we're learning, <clears throat> when we're teaching, because we might miss out on, you know, getting to some people who can't make that connection with mm. the puffs of air we're sp spurting out <laughs> that we have learned through what our experiences are. <clears throat> Excuse me and then how that grounds into their body. So yeah. yeah, so that's why I'm really, um, I'm very interested also in, this is especially in trauma therapy as well, but uh, more of an embodied approach to things. Um, so not using only our verbal, obviously I'm very dependent on the verbal stuff. I have a podcast, you know, right. but we are also counting on the fact that the people are listening to a podcast, they right. likely have all of that built up already, but there's many, you know, um, people in our audiences who are working with others who don't have that same kind of verbal capacity, mm -hmm. which isn't a lack of intelligence. Right. It's just they haven't, you know, dealt with the same codes that we have yeah. to, you know, verbalize their experiences. Yeah, yeah, which is which is funny because that's which is why Wittgenstein always called them language games because they really are games that we play. And if you don't know the rules of the game, you can't yeah. play the game. And it doesn't mean yeah. you're not smart. It just means you don't understand the rules of this game yet. Like if you've ever been, yep. <laughs> I'm thinking about some of the, my wife and I are big, huge board game fanatics. We especially love the really complicated um, cooperative games that have been become a craze over the last 10 years or so. But if you've ever had friends come over, uh, not in the last year, but if you've had friends come over and you're like, oh, mm -hmm. we're going to play this cool game you guys would love. And you try to you explain the game, you go, you'll get it as we go along. And your friends have this glazed over look like, I, I just want to go back to watching TV or eating popcorn. I, do, <laughs> I, I don't yeah. have it in me right now to learn what clearly you've spent years developing as the rules yeah. of this game. Um, yeah. You know how frustrating that can be. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's really powerful, actually, the idea of language games, because I also think that if we look at, you know, systems of oppression and caste systems as well, that one way to kind of lock people out is to keep them from learning, keep them from going to school and actually becoming literate yeah. and learning the language game, the language code. And I think and that's gone, that goes back a long time. I think I've heard that even the clergy in ancient Egypt, like they wanted to have the codes to the hieroglyphs mm -hmm. and not share that with the masses because there is, there's these language games that are played. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a powerful concept. That's, no, that's, that's wild. And I'm, I'm my, uh, my wife is a, uh, 
she's a marriage and family therapist, uh, an LMFT. And so a lot of what you're talking about with trauma and working, and she works a lot with kids and kind of at-risk families and things like that, um, which was wild during the pandemic, watching her make her pivot in there in, in an industry that was so confident they could never go virtual, right? Mm. Um, watching them on a dime figure out how to do, you know, therapy with five-year-olds over Zoom. Like it was so nuts watching that happen on yeah. a, you know, overnight. My wife, Lindsay, she, she taught me one of the things that has been the most critical in my career. You would think this would have come from a, a business coach or a marketing guy. No, it was from my wife from therapy. And years ago, she said something to me I've never forgotten, which is that in therapy, you need to meet people where they're at. And I just went, oh, that's, that's the whole that's game it. as a speaker, as an author, as a coach, as a, that's all of it, right? As, a, as an educator, as a communicator, as just, just having a chat with somebody in line at Starbucks, meet people where they're at. Yeah, that's yeah. so, that's brilliant. Yeah, I, I, I've said that as well. And it, I would say it in terms of emotional leadership as well, mm. to understand yeah. that, you know, some of us have had many more longer intervals mm. of psychological safety than others as well. And so we've had a, an ability to build up, you know, systems that that can help us through that. Whereas some people who face a lot of uncertainty, a lot of adversity and things like that, um, when those are shorter interval intervals, they might have less capacity to build up some of those self-regulating mechanisms. So we also need to meet people where they're at emotionally too. Yeah. Um, and that especially goes for teachers to students as well, that the brain, the way the human brain builds up, there's no possibility that a teacher and a student are anywhere near the same level right. in terms of the ability to self-regulate. So sometimes I find the expectations too high uh, from a teacher, and then they don't know how to meet people where they're at and go back down to their own like beginner level yeah. of how to explain that. So just like what your wife was saying. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember that experience when I was in, I was a philosophy and mathematics dual major. Um, as I like to joke, I wanted to have no job and no life. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but I, you know, in one of my math professors, he was a first year professor. He just finished his PhD, you know, months earlier. And as I was, I was like one of his first students, basically in this little class he was teaching, I think it was abstract algebra or something tough. Anyway, it's a tough concept anyway. And this guy was clearly brilliant. I mean, he was clearly brilliant. And us as students, we were kind of the best and brightest in the program, but we were beating our heads against the wall all perfect. We were begging him to help yeah. us understand the concepts. He couldn't, he, he, he used the word obviously all the time. And I find the more you were, use the word obviously, <laughs> the less clear you're being, right? I do it yeah. too. You know, I, can't, I, I try yeah. to catch myself and I go, well, obviously, yeah. and my wife will go, no, it's, it's not, or you wouldn't have, you wouldn't already be explaining it, right? Exactly. Um, so, so maybe you can, let's, Let's work through then the, you know, the reason that I wanted to speak with you specifically is because of the nature of education and the kind of pivot both the field of education had to make and then individual educators had to make. And I'm Perfect. not convinced it was the same pivot. And I think that's where a lot of the problems have come from. Um, but let's talk a little bit then about last year, kind of March, April 2020, the initial response how do you feel the field of education did kind of initially? Was it a good response? Did they have the right idea or, you know, and kind of what happened after that? Well, I think it's it's hard to, to um, qualify that in the sense that, 
So I work with a lot of different educators in different parts of the world as well, mm. um, Canada and like Singapore and U.S. Mm. Big difference, so big differences. It, yeah, it really was. And so that's the interesting part about this as well is that there was such individualized responses mm. um, that it's kind of it's harder to to qualify it in a more general statement. I would say that. Um, my biggest question, I almost want to reframe it as a question for people who are working in education, which is, um, I think the question that came up the most was how do I as an educator and how do we as educators respond to change, crisis and uncertainty? Um, how do we do this? And I think that that is a very revealing answer not just for what happened in March, but how we're going to move forward. Mm -hmm. um, because this is not the only time there's going to be change and dismantling of different things. So I think that that to me is one of the key questions is how, how are we in on an individual level, on a personal level, but also collectively, how are we responding just to change in general? And that touches on this idea of resilience that, that I know that you, you've been talking about. Yeah which is do we do we learn how to shift and flow or do we try to hold on to things in a certain form regardless of what is changing around us and so that actually goes to a, a systems thinking type of concept there's one called static stability and resilience and they're two different things and static stability is this idea of trying to keep measuring the same things and keep the, the format exactly the same and keep the numbers in a sense the same, regardless of what's happening around. Mm -hmm. Resilience is the ability to change the how in a sense mm -hmm. to accomplish the why, mm -hmm. right? And so the form might collapse, the form might just shape shift. Um, but if the purpose is there, then we can maintain that. And then, so that is where I have seen resilience in educators. Yeah. is when they are clear on the purpose, when they know why they are doing it, the rest can collapse and fall and shapeshift and they can keep going and they find ways to do it on the, on the fly mm -hmm. because they're clear of what it is. And so I think that part of what we need to get together now as, as a society is figuring out what is education for, what is the purpose. <laughs> and I think that what we're seeing now is we know that there is a difference now. Um, Many of us probably in your audience well, as well have listened to Seth Godin and read some of his books as well, and he's not the first person to talk about it, but the shift from having you know schools built for an industrial era where it needed to be standardized, that there was a, a value in place, a societal value in place to you know have things have people become factory workers and and be compliant and obedient and yeah. you know keep things on a on a factory assembly line in a sense. And now we are in a, a form collapsing kind of world where structures just change and, and how we get things done changes all the time, which means that the purpose of education needs to change. And this is where this idea of resilience, and I think you've, you've said this as well, flexibility and adaptation is the most important purpose for education, I think, at this point. And now we are seeing this and COVID threw that in our face, yeah. basically, you know, really, um, highlighted that the purpose of what we need to now be teaching is to help create the cognitive, mental, physical, emotional ability to flex and shift and, and flow with change and uncertainty. So, yeah. yeah so I, I think the, the idea of purpose and the why 
becoming really clear so that the form can can change. Mm. Um, I, yeah, we can go I lo- yeah, I love that distinction. Uh, and I, I love the way you, you, you framed that as, you know, we need to be able to shift our how. Um, the, 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 how isn't that important? I feel like there's, there's so much focus on how in so many industries, how do you do this thing? But, but if, if you're clear on why you're doing it, what it's for, then you can take lots of different paths to get there. And so in in that way, as you were talking, I, I thought, you know, what I've been thinking and wasn't sure how to kind of frame it, but you just kind of helped me frame it, which is over the last year, I feel like educators, individual teachers and educators were very resilient in an educational system that was not. And yeah. I think this is where a lot of the rub is that the 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 system, which of course is made up of individuals. I remind people all the time, there is no such thing as an organization. It's just a bunch of people, right? Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, the educational system, the people in charge on on scale seem to be insisting that we don't change the how, that, no, you're just going to keep doing it the way it's always been. And maybe we got to put webcams up and we got we to get the schools back open. We got to stay in the classroom and make it. And teachers are going, this is, our kids don't need this right now. This is not helping yeah. them. And nobody is getting behind. I kept hearing, well, the kids are going to get behind. I was like, the whole world is, it's the whole, it's the whole right. world. Behind on what? <laughs> behind exactly. on the, the, yeah. the arbitrary metrics we set for ourselves every 10 years and continually fail to achieve. Uh-huh. Like we're having uh-huh. the same conversation exactly. in education every 10 years. Like the metrics yep. don't work. Um, exactly. So, I mean, so I'm sure you, you've seen that then. What have you seen educators, individual teachers doing? Um, are, are they succeeding to to keep moving the needle in spite of the system? I mean, I worry because I see educators just quitting left and right over the last mm-hmm. year, just going, I, mm-hmm. I care about my students, but I can't do this anymore. Yeah, yeah. Because it is taking a toll on the, on the educators as well. Yeah. Um, I think that, so again, it's, it's definitely coming down to an, right now, just in terms of my experience with it, um, what I'm seeing from individual educators. There are many who are really understanding. This, so there's two things that are being revealed to them. Mm-hmm. One is they are now getting a chance to see the home environments of many of their students, mm-hmm. which is very enlightening to them. Yeah. And they did not have that before. Mm-hmm. So they're seeing how many siblings are there. What kind, like there's, there's interactions that the students can't hide now mm-hmm. that are happening at home. So there is definitely um, a sense of enlightenment that's happening on for many teachers because this is being illuminated to them. Um, and then the other one is that because teachers are, are having this toll on them as well, this burden from the uncertainty and just all the stuff that's been taken away in a sense from because of COVID, they are understanding the importance of self-care and the idea of really figuring out how to get your state into a better place. Mm. And so I'm, I'm seeing educators as well, putting that as a focus first in terms of the virtual classrooms. Mm. Um, and I would say that is in spite of what the system would be telling them to do in a sense. Yeah. You know, I, I, I know, I know a million, you know, teachers, I mean, most of my family is in education, but I, there's, you know, one in particular that I can think of who I've talked to a lot over the last year and he kept saying that it kept coming down from the superintendent, basically, that you're, 
that they need to get these grades in and they need to get these students to hit these, you know, standards and stuff. And, and this person I'm thinking of is, is a, he's a music, he's a band director. And first he was doing band on zoom, which by the way, is impossible. If you know, the late, <laughs> you know, even trying to have a conversation is, is difficult with, with round trip yeah. latency. And so band with seventh graders on zoom, ridiculous, but he was doing it anyway. But he was being pushed by this superintendent and coming down from kind of on up high. Like we need to keep getting the standard grades and the metric. And then, and he kept, he kept pushing back for the first time ever. He had kind of, he, he said, no, no, I'm not. Everybody gets an A. If they, mm. if they tried to play their instrument once they get an A, uh, it, mm -hmm. I'm not grading them on this. First of all, it's art and it should never be graded the way we normally grade it. But especially mm -hmm. now art is the only thing they have right now to help them through. They mm -hmm. actually don't need math right now. Like he was getting really angry. He's like, actually, they don't need math and English and history right now. What they really need is art. They need self-care. They need, um, you know, so it's just. It's such a difficult, well, why, why do you think, cause you talk a lot about systems. Why do you think that the educational system is so resistant to change? Whereas teachers were at least some, many, I would say are, were willing to try to make things different, if not better. I, I mean, I think that the, the system is so established mm -hmm. and so, and so, um, kind of structurally dogmatic solid yeah and dogmatic and so it's funny because i see a lot of um i see an analogy between the brain and and school the education system in a sense so um the way the brain builds its circuits you know it's it's use it or lose it and it's survival of the busiest so whatever you know yeah. um is the most established is what really gets solidified in a sense in the brain and it's very, very difficult once it is an established network, established circuit to, to let it fizzle out. It needs something competing and it needs a competing circuit to fire so much that the brain then devotes resources naturally to the new circuit. Mm -hmm. It won't do it spontaneously, randomly, and it will not do it if it's just intermittent. It has to be this patterned, rep repetitive type of new firing, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I see the same thing with many of our structures. We don't have a enough of a firing that's like consistent and steady and with enough volume and amplitude to, to let the other one crumble away. So I see teachers' voices coming up and then they quiet down and they come up, but it's not, it's not steady enough. And it may not be collective enough at this point. So that's the other thing. And I think we have power now. I think that's the beauty of the era we're in with what we're sharing online and the connectivity of the human species. Yeah. But it's, yeah, right now it's, it's like this, a new network of new, new brain circuit in education is trying to fire, but it's, it's competing against the old, the old system. And it's really hard to do. That's interesting that you said that it, it may just not be you know, collective enough in terms of the educators themselves. And I, I've, I've, I've been shocked about this because I, I, I thought I was being very prescient about it. Uh, last April, I was invited on a couple of different live streams, podcasts for educators. I, I, uh, and even though I am not one because of the nature of what the work I do, I get brought on to talk about that. And, and I found myself saying over and over, this was very early, right? Right after the first shutdown, schools really hadn't even tried to go back yet. Remember, it was two weeks. We're going to shut down for two weeks. It's going to be okay. 
Um, so back in that time, I know, right? Thinking back on that, isn't it just ridiculous how much a year has changed? Yeah. Um, wow. Now I'm like, no, I'm I'm good to just stay, continue staying in my bunker for a while. Thank you. Uh, mm-hmm. So I was on some of these live streams, and I kept saying increasingly um, passionately, you know. I have a lot of friends who are educators and all I've heard from them for the past few weeks is when are we going to get back into the classroom? When are we going to get back into the classroom? And I keep stopping my friends and saying, listen, I I understand you're nervous right now, but for the last 10 years, all you've done is complain about the system. You've complained for 10 years, for 20 years sometimes that it's not serving students, it's not serving teachers, it's not serving anybody. Why are you in such a hurry to get back to the thing that you know wasn't working? And- I thought for sure, I kept saying, this is it. The the slate is clean. We wiped it. All the rules are gone. You, teachers, you get a chance to rewrite the rules if you want to. And I really thought the big revolution was coming, that this was it. And it's almost uh-huh. been a year now, and all the push is still to get back into the old format. Uh-huh. And, and from uh-huh. a lot of teachers, too. Yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of, sh- I'm, I'm shocked. I, I, I get, I'm not a teacher, so I can't, you know, I'm not in the position to speak to that. And I... I I understand the the social aspect, right? We totally understand what they're missing mm-hmm. socially. Mm-hmm. But if school is just for socializing, we don't need the buildings, right? If that's yeah. all it's for, there's other ways to do that. So I guess I'm I'm still a little perplexed that there isn't a bigger uprising from teachers to make things better. Yeah. And it, it once again, it falls in line. I, I see so many things as analogies to what happens in our brain, but our, our, our mind, brain, body system. And this is why I just think it's so powerful for people to understand the, the chemistry, the neurochemistry that occurs within us because the mind, brain, body system, um, it is very resource conservative. It doesn't want to expend resources just for anything that whatever happens. It wants to create prediction. It wants to create predictability um, because predictability allows it to figure out how to predict and then avoid pain and seek, you know, seek reward and stuff like that. And so we, we are all that we are all very certainty, uh, seeking creatures because we are driven by this architecture within us. That's always looking to make sure things are predictable. So I think that the other piece is not just what you're saying, like going back to the classroom to be social and all that, I think that there is also, and I think this speaks to all of all humans on a universal level, is that when we do finally get an opportunity to have some freedom, freedom also means uncertainty. It's something that's not approved of or established. We don't know what's going to happen. And there is a lot of fear involved in that. So I would say, too, that I think in terms of educators, there's this yearning to be more free and do what they want. And then that's coupled immediately with a fear of, I don't really know how to do that though. I don't, now I'm going to have to be in that creative mode where I have to expend so much energy creating something new that it's exhausting. And so that's also where, because people are, it's not collective enough of a movement where there's that kind of support, I think, for this idea of, you know, there is going to be failure there's going to be total, you know, it's just not going to work. A lot of the new ideas. And and we don't, I think as a culture as well, we don't have a lot of patience for that. We don't have a lot of tolerance for the failure that is needed for Mm -hmm. us to create something new. So, and that's another piece that just comes from systems thinking is this idea that um, complexity. And so 
a complex adaptive system is something that creates more complexity. So it starts off with, you know, building blocks. And then from those building blocks, it can create more and more complexity from that. Mm. That is what a human is, a brain is, a school is, an education system is, a government. All, all of these things are complex adaptive systems. Um, what makes a complex adaptive system resilient is its ability to self-organize. So self-organization is the idea that the little pieces within it can now, you know, tr try new combinations and, and possibly shift out of, expand out of whatever the current structure is. But what is very interrelated to that is a failure, you know, failure and um, not working, not creating the same product as before. So if we're fixated on the product, we will see it as a failure. Mm -hmm. So that's again, that what and the how, right? Yeah. Um, and so what's happening within the, and this is in many different systems that we have, but education is one of them. It's trying to create the same product. And by doing that, it's not allowing for the self-organization, which means they're, and this is coming from the higher ups as well, the super, all, all of the people in the higher up structures is that they will see everything else as failure and they it's too scary to go into that realm. Mm. And I think teachers as an individuals are also scared about that yeah. because yeah, they'd love to try that new project. And then what if uh, then they have to get tested later on something mm. and all the students fail. So it's, it's such a, there's so much of both yeah. like this excitement and yearning for new and freedom. And then the fear that comes with it that's happening. Yeah. So I don't want to leave everything on kind of a, almost a, a well, you know, <laughs> that's why these things are happening. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's let's at least have some kind of a prescription if we can. I mean, so somebody's listening to this and they want to uh, be more resilient. They want to be in better shape for the, even if they did this pivot well, they, they want to be better suited for the next pivot, small or large in their life. What's at mm -hmm. least one thing they can do today, this weekend, this week? Um, okay. to, to make themselves better prepared? Yeah. Well, I would say that, um, so there's two thing, two concrete things that we can all focus on, whether we're educators or leaders or just individuals, is what are our hands and voices doing? Mm -hmm. So um, if we can use our voice and our hands to create more complexity, to do something new that's not automated, unconscious, repetitive, regurgitating, then we're on the right track. So as long as we can incorporate, and I find that it's, it's powerful to have concrete, tangible things to think about. So voice is one and hands are another, mm -hmm. um, that if we can figure out, sorry, my cat's coming in. <laughs> That's a very um, concrete thing. Yes. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to show you what I'll do. Um, so yeah, I think that if we can um, let ourselves see what are our hands doing in different moments, what are we teaching other people to do with their hands and their voices, and are we are we creating um, whether it's activities or ideas or just moments and interactions with people where we do something new with our hands? It sounds like such a simple thing, um, but I think that one thing that is happening in our society, and this is happening more now that educators are going online, is it's a very repetitive action. Mm. So it's holding things in a very similar way all the time. 
And that goes against the complexity of the human brain. Mm -hmm. It needs to have a lot of different variety of movement and, and all that. So that would be something that, you know, just concrete to leave, leave people with is what can you bring into your learning environment where you're getting people to do something new with their hands and their voices and even just bring in other senses because that's the other thing is we're almost atrophying um, the sensory type of circuits involved in smell and taste and touch. Mm -hmm. And that's what I see um, a lot of the very resilient creative educators doing is they have the online environment, but then they have treasure hunts or they have scavenger hunts or they have activities where the students continuously integrate all their other senses into the classroom. Yeah. So just complex, free, creative uh, movement, voice, hands, and, and the senses. I think that's the key. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's the key. That's great. Yeah, I, I, love, I, I love that advice too, especially in, in a virtual world to get people doing something that's visceral, that's tangible, because uh, this, this feels very, it, it, even though I see your face, like it, it can feel very um, sci-fi, very fake still, because there's, yeah. a, there's yeah. that, that even, even if you have a really good internet connection, there's just a little delay. Your brain just knows ah, something's wrong, right? There's just that little, ah, this isn't, this isn't exactly the way it should be. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, I love that. I'm going to ask you one final, oh, go ahead, please. I was just going to say, and, and it's also just a bit of a compromise as well for educators who are still feeling very stuck by what's happening. And, you know, again, of course, we want to be creating like new, new ideas and new systems, but we have to also meet people where they're at, right? What we were saying in the yeah. beginning, and they are in a position where they are feeling still that pressure. So this is a bit of a compromise where there's content and there's certain things that are being asked of you. But if you can bring in these different senses, the movement, and the, and the playfulness of it, you are actually um, firing up the brain in ways that are very, very powerful, powerful for learning. It has more hooks as to what it's going to remember because now it's a body, cellular, visceral memory of whatever the content is. So that will, I believe, translate even into the results that you're looking for more than this passive consumption. So that's not really what the brain is only designed to do. So yeah, it's kind of a compromise to meet educators where they're at as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, where should people find you? Uh, do you want them to connect with you on LinkedIn, Insta, website, blog? Where Where are you? Where should people find you? Yeah, well, my favorite is is my blog. Um, so stephaniefay.com. It redirects. I have stephaniefayfrank, stephaniefay.com. So it's all with Fs. And yeah, I have my, my podcast listed there, my blog and email gifts and stuff like that. So, Great. Yeah. Is your podcast accessible to somebody who doesn't know anything about neuroscience? Yes, very much. Great. That's that's always been my audience, um, at least in the beginning. Season two, I am expanding on kind of season one. But yeah, yeah it's, I, I would say it's very accessible. Well, I'm, I'm pumped because I, I've always, that's one of the things where, because I never ended up going to grad school and, and much of my family's in academics. And I've, I've always felt that little, like, oh, I, I just don't know enough about all these things I really love. Um, but podcasts and everything have really just blown up our ability to just like, you don't have to go spend nine years exactly. getting a PhD anymore. I mean, you'll never have the letters after your name, but you can go learn stuff. <laughs> like it's, exactly. it's really cool. Yeah. Let me ask you this question, this final question, which is, uh, I've been asking this for everybody who is coming on as a, as a subject of the Pivot Project, um, and I haven't asked this of other people I've had on as in the experts, but I, I feel like I should be. How would you describe 2020 last year? 
in one mm-hmm. word? Oof. Um, can I use two words? I mean, you can Maybe cheat if you one. want to. <laughs> can you put a well, hyphen between them? I'll, I'll, say, I'll say the two, and then I can probably get it down to one. Evolving awareness. Mm. Um, so it could just be the word awareness. Yeah. We're becoming very aware of things, of old ways of being, of our own responses to things. Um, so I would say that awareness, like we are, everything is, is being revealed in a sense, um, things that are wrong, things that go well. Um, yeah. So I would say that would be, that would be the word I would use. That's a great answer. I, uh, I really appreciate you being here, Stephanie. Thank you so much. I think people are going to just love uh, this conversation and want to dive in more and head over to your podcast and, and your blog. So um, I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for, for your time in the midst of everything. Thank you. It was really great. I really enjoyed the conversation. 